Chapter 11, Part 2 Some men can pull off the sleeveless flannel shirt look or wear the trucker cap with a sense of irony. Not Hank the Pimp. The torn jeans and the exposed gray boxer shorts, the high-top sneakers, it's his uniform, his brand, and he is proud of it. He doesn't care that he walks and talks like a cartoon, but his heart and mind are very dark. The way he looks at women, the way his tongue laps his cracking lips as his eyes scan up and down a woman's body, it is an attempt to humiliate them, to tell them he is better and more powerful than anything without a penis. To Hank, women are cattle, weak and needy. The sad thing is that there are enough women here that believe this is true. I studied his ugly, dirty face and the curls of greasy brown hair stuffed up into the stained hat that advised me that he was born on a mountain and raised in a cave, and that hearty Pabst and Pussy is all I crave. Oh, I did not mask my disgust, which he answered by flashing me his candy corn-colored teeth. Are you doing a story on Miss Molly here, Jilly? She's got quite the story, I tell you. All the way from York, Pennsylvania, born and raised, city girl. Grew up on, what was it, honey, North George Street? I cut him off before he could weave his first embarrassing detail into the biography. I'm not writing about Molly. We were talking about the weather. Might rain later today. Yep, just sitting here on the mayor's lawn, waiting for rain. This certainly derailed Hank's train of thought, or at least his little choo-choo of thinky-thinks. He just stood there for a moment, breathing out of his mouth, and looked me over again. This time with some dumb irritation, like I might have something to prove. Molly remained still, eyes down at her clenched hands. Molly, you haven't been telling stories out of school, have you? You can't be giving out my business secrets to Brenda Starr here, because what would I do if another handsome Henry Hill sets up shop on my block? Jesus, Hank! I laughed. Who the hell writes your material? Brenda Starr? That's the only example of a female journalist you can come up with from the last 50 years. Come on. Kara Hash lives in this bunker, and she's a real award-winning reporter. Brenda Starr? Why not Lois Lane? He glared at me with what must have been the look he saved for people who didn't have enough to cover what they owed him. But I wasn't in the mood. I was feeling my inner constable. You know what, Hank? I'll trade you for that expression. Hang on, let me see what I've got here in my invisible sampler box of assorted fucks. Do I have a fuck I could give? Hmm, no. I got no flaming fucks, no broody tooty fruity fucks. Maybe I have two shits. That's the going rate for a fuck, right? Two shits? Hang on, let me check my invisible bag of giving shits. No. A tiny little shit? Sorry, no. I don't have a single shit or fuck to give you for that stupid look on your face. So, stop giving it to me. It isn't profitable. Of course, the cardboard villain had to point out my dirty mouth and throw out a few veiled sexual threats about cold, dark, hidden corners and 
lustful desires of immortal men. I let him lay out his little brand of foreplay a bit before cutting him off in mid-fantasy. Hank, since we're both opening up and sharing, I want you to know that Harris and Jeb both hate you very, very much. They hate you the way parents love their children. They do know that you've been breaking the little deal you have with the constables about not tattling to school kids or their guardians. They know you've been stealing from the commissary, too. And if anything should happen to me, or Molly, or any slender pretty things you might want to use as your little punching bag later on, you will not be protected. If you think I'm joking, I want you to consider how it is I know that you have a beer case full of medications and alcohol in stack three row... Before I could get the whole location out, Hank barked something about not meaning nothing by anything and other double negatives covered in spittle. He didn't seem nervous, but he was suddenly a few inches short of a grown man. He half apologized and tried to play off what I knew as rumor danced and drawled about trouble right here in River City until he caught Molly's eye and he froze in mid-two-step like someone paused him on their TiVo. Molly was smiling. She was smiling at me. In fact, she was about to break into a laugh and so quickly covered her smile in a shaky palm. Hank's face went all wrinkly. It squeezed together so tight I thought it might wring the grease out of his pores. But he said nothing for a moment, tilting his head to look at the two of us like a woodchuck sizing up two predators. Then he checked his watch and growled at Molly. Forty-two minutes. I didn't watch Hank storm off. I was morbidly captivated by Molly's withering smile and souring expression. With that one reminder, I was back with that scared, twitchy woman again. For a moment, I saw a light in Molly's eyes and she looked younger. Softer. It felt good to have made her feel better, if only for a second, by standing up to a bully. To be honest, I don't have much pull with Harris and none at all with Jeb. Jeb would just as soon let Hank use me like a gym sock as not. I probably screwed up the little secret plan because Hank would be on his way over to Stack 39 right away to move his ill-gotten booty somewhere else. But I hadn't lied about anything. Hank walks a thin line with the constables and even with corrupt sick managers like Jack. And they are just waiting for him to stumble or tilt the residents of HG World against them. Someday, someone will end up dead and Hank will be the one holding the pill bottle. On that day, gods help us. But it was worth all that to stand up to a piece of sentient garbage like Hank. I was still very angry and told Molly, You don't have to do this. We can go to the mayor, to the constables. I didn't realize my hand was on hers until she pulled away from me. Molly stood up and invited me to follow her. I decided that if I was to get answers or help her, I'd have to because she was going to leave the mayor's porch with or without me. I followed her silently out through Dogwood Apartments and through an empty stretch of shelving where the sanitation supplies had been before they were consolidated by the management. 
I followed her behind an empty constable station near the old hardware section and to the shadowy recess leading to the customer restrooms. They had been locked up permanently once the showers and outdoor compost toilets were operational. Molly slid her hands under her sweatshirt, where I heard a quick metal zip and a jingle of keys. A second later, the ladies' room door was unlocked and she was pulling me inside, into the dark. She held onto my arm and told me to stay close. It was strange, but exciting too. I trusted her to show me something that might let me help, so I embraced that total darkness for a moment and focused on the soft, warm touch of her hand moving from my forearm up to my shoulder. Her grip tightened suddenly as she tugged and twisted around until I heard a soft click, and the room lit up in the soft glow of a camping lantern. With the lamp lit, Molly turned the tumbler lock on the inside of the door and kicked a folded carpet swatch across the gap between the door and the tile floor. She moved her hand from my shoulder and put a finger up to her lips as she led me around a tile wall and into the ladies' room. I expected the smell of sewer and signs of construction, but in the dim light, it seemed cleaner than my dorm showers at school. I spoke low and soft to ask why we were there. Molly answered by pulling off her oversized sweatshirt to reveal the top of a sequined leotard. In the lamplight, it took on a rich burgundy color with sparkly bits in a pattern up across the bust. Molly put the lantern down on a nearby sink and turned on a second sitting atop a soap dispenser. The row of mirrors along the wall helped spread the lamplight around. Molly kicked off her shoes and unclasped the fanny pack she'd been wearing and put it on the sink as well. Finally, she slipped off the leggings to reveal cheap white cotton tights. I have to admit, that particular sweatshirt hid quite a lot of awesome. Molly is thin, no surprise, but had well-defined arms and legs and a very flat stomach. The body and costume shouted college gymnast. She stood in front of me waiting for me to say something, ask something, and I stood there stuck in this groove between my shock of wondering why she was dressed like that and that selfish little tingle in the, um, back of my head that said, Woof. Over the years, I've trained myself not to show my attraction to other women, particularly women I didn't know. But free of Hank and that ugly shirt, she held herself confidently, gracefully. Maybe my reaction was obvious, but it was not unwelcome because she seemed to enjoy standing there, letting me just... Look. That was a very nice place to be, Edwise. As the seconds of silence stretched out... I felt a little like this was turning into a little bit of seven minutes in heaven with the vicarious sorority girl. Then the reality of why she was showing me her unusual undergarments hit me in the gut. It was Jack's deal. Molly cast a glance down under the sink to show a box of boots half hidden in the shadow. Not boots. Ice skates. When she saw that realization in my face, she raised an eyebrow and curled her lip in an adorable, Can you believe it? 
kind of expression, rolled her eyes, and then turned to the mirror. She pulled a few items of makeup out of her pack. As she considered what to do about her face, I stepped up behind her and asked, Why? There are things that people need in this place that go beyond the chemical, beyond the physical, and I wish I could say it stopped at the spiritual, but I'm not sure the corporate leadership have authorized or invented an acceptable opiate for the sheep. Perhaps one day the mayor will descend from the office with some cryptic rules etched into planks of polished marble and tell us all how it's going to be. But until then, we all have to make do with our own personal Jesus or movie or polish the pipe of the great subgenius J.R. Bob Dobbs to earn our little insights into whatever the fuck it is we did to turn God back into the merciless bloodthirsty monsters who had no trouble wiping out the entire fucking planet because some people decided it would be fun to thank a cow for their daily meal. Here, there's none of that end-of-days bullshit panic returning to the faith. Here, Faith is something you have to buy or trade for through filth like Hank the Pimp. Wow. How's that for an epic digression? People like Molly came to HG World with all sorts of personal items, things that connected them to the world before and, in turn, people they left behind. Most of the things that were checked were returned. But some items were not properly catalogued or labeled, particularly in the last few arrivals, when the eaters were mobbing the gates. All those items are still somewhere awaiting a slow, meticulous attempt to reunite them with their owners. When Molly said she was going to sit through the groping and probing and sliming for a book, I begged Molly just to go to the mayor and see if he could speed things up. It's a Bible! Who wouldn't want someone to get back their good book? But Molly said she tried. When Jack claimed it wasn't in the Lost and Found, she tried the new library that opened up next to the new classroom. She asked Ruby for access to the Lost and Found to look herself, but for some reason Ruby danced around the issue until Jack told her no. She stalked the mayor for two weeks, ten hours at a time after trying to get Jenny Joe to put her on his schedule, but never seemed to be able to catch him. Jack's bet was that Molly's desire for that book was powerful enough that she would submit to his own. But there was no guarantee he knew where the book was, that Hank was delivering a square deal. Certainly, if Hank didn't deliver, his reputation would suffer in the one area that isn't already covered in chaw-spit, grease, and failure. Molly put away her makeup and zipped the bag closed, turned around and presented herself to me. You look like a clown, I said, wanting to use a more pejorative term to describe her. She looked disappointed and a little sad. Immediately, I felt horrible for saying it. Really, she was pretty. She was stupid and crazy and maybe suicidal, but she was committed. She picked up the shoebox with the skates inside, and I noticed she had three shrink-wrapped cartons of generic cigarettes on the floor just behind the box. Fine, I decided. 
In for a penny, in for a buck ninety-nine. Let me find it for you, I almost begged. I know the constables. They'll help me. They hate Jack. But Molly reassured me my generous and totally random gesture would never work. She outlined a series of events that made it clear that this event had been engineered from the very first moment Jack laid eyes on her. When she sat down with Jack for her intake interview and talked about her skills, he didn't even bother hiding his intentions. His elevator eyes were no doubt intended as a blessing or an anointment of her physical gifts. Men don't seem... Check that. Some men don't seem to understand that liking our soft, curvy bits is fine, but not required. Who we are and what we dress like are not an open invitation to get all touchy and rapey. And while we have no control over what they think about in their darkest, most passionate grip and runts, they should keep those dreams and proposals to themselves. Thanks much. Even after, he tried a soft touch with easy job assignments, coming around to her barracks and offering to show her cottages in the garden section and inviting her to dinner up in the manager's offices. With each rejection, Jack put in play a series of obstacles. He knew she wanted her property back, so he released it slowly. A small bag of toiletries here, a book there, a dead cell phone enclosed in a plastic bag. Eventually, all he had left to keep her attention was her Bible. She was dumb about explaining its personal and sentimental value, and Jack jumped on the opportunity to send his flunky Hank out to broker the deal. Why did you come to me, Red Molly? Why did you ask me back to your secret dressing room if you were just going to go through with the sick joke of a deal anyway? Why should I care what happens to you if you're too stupid or stubborn to let that... book... Go. Why give Hank and Jack power over you like that? And why make me witness it? I've seen enough people destroyed by stupid mistakes or just bad luck to see someone throw themselves to the monsters like this. And why, when you saw me hurting for you, bitter and outraged over something some dumb stranger was about to do despite the most basic common sense... Did you step up to me and take me in your arms? Why did you press yourself against me and breathe against my neck? How did you know I'd say yes when you whispered that you needed me to be there when you returned? Did I say yes because I knew it meant you'd kiss me? And since I gave you that small piece of myself, revealed that one secret to you that until recently I'd hidden from myself... Why do I suddenly feel sick that Jack would even touch you, much less have you to himself? You left me with so many questions, vanishing into the shadows around the corner and slipping out the door skate box under your arm. I didn't even notice you handed me a key until it slipped from my fingers and rang against the tile door. Christ, girl. I don't know who's dumber. You for doing this or me for giving a Greek goddamn about you. I carried her smell of powder and hairspray back to birch section, thinking about the last few words she spoke. 
in the fog of this scary, blissful feeling and the memory of her light, graceful fingers gliding across the back of my neck. I lost the words exactly. But Molly promised to show me why that book was so important to her. Tell me her story. Be my friend. I ran into Alan somewhere along the way. She had a weird smile on her face that caught my attention. Your lipstick is, uh, smeared. I don't know if it was the amused kind or knowing kind of smile, but I didn't care. I wore my own smeared smile all the way back to my cot in Birch, where I wrote all this down and started looking for David to get his advice on some things. Diary Update It's been about two days since I last saw Molly. I just found a brown paper bag on my cot in Birch section. This was about a half hour after seeing Hank haunting the steps up to the manager's office. He gave me the kind of overconfident, sneering smile you'd see from a cartoon bad guy. I considered asking him if he'd seen Molly. Regina and Krantz had not. Regina is her work counselor, and Krantz... Well, as I said, Krantz and I have the same taste in women. I just opened the bag. Inside was a torn and soiled, shimmery red leotard and a pair of shredded discolored tights. I'd been to Molly's secret place twice since I last wrote of her and there were no signs she'd been there. Even the cartons of smokes remained untouched under one of the sinks. I rushed there again, bag in hand, but nothing had changed. I even checked each stall in case she was curled up and hiding from me. I lit up all of the lanterns and removed the outfit from the bag. It was torn in some places. Cut in others like an initial incision had to be made before someone could rip open the garment like in some horrible romance novel. Around some of the straight cuts I found dark stains. Small, certainly not life-threatening amounts of blood, but on the stretched stitching in the shoulder and bright red spots on the white cotton tights meant she struggled. Oh, Hank. Oh, Jack. What have you done with my red molly? And when I find her... What are you going to offer me in trade to let you live to see another artificial sunrise? 